are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the latter divine ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with step number 24 on page 279 with number 27 at the very beginning of the page. If you remember, we've been speaking about guilelessness, meekness, simplicity. And uh, so he'll be closing out his uh, teaching on that for us before we move on to the step on humility, uh, which, as I mentioned before we started, is quite beautiful. And uh, again, one of the longest steps of the ladder, and I think one of the most beautiful. So number 27, I mean, paragraph 27. The evil man is a false prophet who thinks that from the words from words he can catch thoughts and from outward appearance dispositions of the heart. So it's a strong statement. Uh, an evil man is a false prophet. Um, one who thinks that simply by what a person says or by what they do that you can judge what is within their hearts. You could judge the truth about that individual. And strong words for a reason, because I think uh, this is often our natural tendency uh, to judge simply but by what we see. And uh, when we do so, we tend to judge wrongly. And, uh, and it can be certainly destructive to the individual's reputation, but also to charity as a whole, but most of all, destructive to our own hearts. Uh, when we fall into this kind of pride, we quickly fall, then uh, typically into the passions that we struggle with the most. We come to see our own weakness and poverty very quickly. Number 28, I have seen honest souls who learned to be evil from evil people. And I've marveled how they could lose their natural disposition and superiority so soon. But it is as easy for the honest to fall from grace as it is difficult to change the dishonest. The true exile, obedience, and guarding of the lips have often had great power and have wonderfully re restored the incurable. And so... Again, another strong statement that uh, there is an ease of movement, John is telling us, from what is honest and good uh, to that which is dishonest and uh, sinful or evil, he even says, that uh, we can move from that humble state uh, 
uh, and a state of charity towards others uh, ever so quickly, uh, a turn of the mind of our thoughts uh, to judging another is often all that it takes uh, to again, make us lose that, that charity. And, uh, and once it's lost, it's very difficult to, to regain and uh, as difficult as it is to change uh, a dishonest person into an honest person, he tells us. And he mentions three things here, uh, exile, true exile, obedience, and guarding the lips. So certainly, you know, becoming watchful of our speech, silence is often the path to maintaining charity, uh, where our thoughts might be running about another person or, or our feelings about them. If we remain silent and do not speak, uh, we can avoid a great deal of sin within our life. Uh, obedience. Uh, we've talked about this before, the root of it being ab adere, to listen, uh, to hear. And so, again, living in a st state of silence, but not only that, of uh, placing ourselves under the guidance of another, uh, heeding what another, wiser than ourselves and humbler than ourselves, heeding their words and placing ourselves under their, their guidance. So setting aside one's own willfulness and willful judgment uh, can be the cure that it is, is needed. And so for a person to enter into the monastery, um, it's not, again, because they see themselves as having reached a certain level of sanctity. There has to be uh, this sense of need for this path, this kind of obedience, silence, and then true exile, John says. So the, the, the stepping away from the world uh, in order to, to live this uh, life of penance, of asceticism. Uh, and so when we've fallen into pride in great measure, the, the measures that are taken uh, to bring what can seem incurable uh, once we're in its grip uh, uh, have to at times be uh, ex extreme, at least from a certain worldly point of view. But uh, in the way that Christ, I think, teaches in the gospel, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That there are certain sacrifices that we may have to make in our life in order to maintain virtue, but not only to maintain virtue, but to, to grow, to be able to take hold of the grace that God is offering us, but also to heed his call uh, to live in accord with the gospel and to conform ourselves to the Beatitudes, that there might be things that are even relatively benign, as we've often talked about, that we have to separate ourselves from in order that we might respond more, more fully. And uh, this is often one of the things I find most challenging in the Fathers, that ours is not simply a call to be good, uh, but to conform ourselves to, to Christ, to live a Christ-like life. And, uh, and so what we are seeking is not simply freedom from sin. Uh, what we are seeking is to participate in the virtue, the strength, the holiness of Christ himself.
And if I think if we lose sight of that end, if it's not always before our, our minds and within our hearts, then we can sort of begin to plateau or uh, become somewhat neglectful uh, or lazy within this spiritual life. Number 29, if knowledge puffs up most people, simplicity and, and lack of learning can perhaps in the same measure humble them. All the same, here and there, there are people who pride themselves on their ignorance. So it touches on a few things here that uh, we can often fall into a kind of conceit of knowledge that those who are well-educated in uh, a field or a number of fields can develop this kind of conceit of knowledge where they feel then that their perception of reality, of uh, what is true, uh, is great. And, uh, and that uh, certainly there is nothing to be learned from others who perhaps have less education than themselves. Uh, and and not to understand that uh, there is a knowledge that comes through experience and often through experience alone. And there is also a knowing that comes through faith. And, uh, and so when there is this conceit of knowledge, it can become, uh, or where there is this great uh, knowledge of worldly things, it can become an obstacle for a perfect person moving forward in faith, because we can begin to rest upon it uh, in regards to our judgment of what's within our hearts or of the things of this world. Again, to pro prioritize uh, private judgment uh, rather than humbly opening one's mind and heart to have that spirit of obedience, of humble obedience, of listening to God or having fostered silence uh, in such a way that we can listen to the word that God desires to speak to our to our hearts. And uh, sometimes the, the more knowledge we have, the more difficult it becomes for us to listen. Our life and our minds can become frenetic and filled with a lot of things that uh, sort of prevent uh, us from listening. But there is a caveat here that John says that there are those who pride themselves on their ignorance, that uh, some uh, can sort of put that forward as a virtue in and of itself, uh, that having a lack of education, of not having formed the mind and the heart, as well as other sensibilities that uh, they can have a pride in it is in insofar as they think that it makes them better than others on the level of virtue. And that's not necessarily the case. The same would be true of some other things. You know, poverty uh, doesn't necessarily mean that one is less attached to the things of this world, let alone their own ego. And so we have to be uh, very careful when, when thinking about these things that on the surface can seem to be virtuous. Number 30, the thrice blessed Paul, the simple, was a clear example for us, for he was the role and type of blessed simplicity. For no one, absolutely no one, has ever seen or heard or could see 
so much progress made in so short a time that, you know, within a humble soul, and this will come up in uh, greater detail in the next step, that this is the quickest path to sanctity, uh, where one emulates Christ in this uh, great, greatest of, of virtues, that uh, we are drawn along the path toward him and the humble one who says, learn from me for I am meek and humble of heart. And, uh, and so Paul the simple, um, you know, becomes this great example of it because it's of how he led his life. Similarly, a simple-hearted monk is like a rational and obedient dumb animal who lays his burden on his director. An animal does not answer back his master who yokes him, nor does an upright soul do this with his superior, but follows whatever wherever he is led. Though sent to the slaughter, he knows not to make protest. So, you know, we are to be lambs of the good shepherd, those who hear his voice and hear it distinctly and follow him and respond as a lamb would respond to uh, the, the shepherd, that uh, they know the voice and know the call of the shepherd and will respond in a way that they do not respond to others who would seek to draw them away. And this is how we are to seek to form and shape our hearts. Uh, both, you know, those who live under a director or a superior within a religious community, uh, but most of all, in terms of our relationship with God, that, uh, you know, this kind of humble faith means that we allow Christ to lead us where he wills that we go and along a path that he desires for us. And that is not always going to match our inclination. You know, our inclination might be to uh, take a much different path, one that we feel is that we're much better suited for or that we imagine for ourselves. And again, it can be something that is good, uh, but uh, being... Uh, servants of Christ isn't necessarily about using our, all of our God-given talents uh, in the way that we often think about it. Uh, it is love that is the virtue that conquers all. And we follow uh, a crucified, humbled Lord, and one who gives himself to us, in fact, is our very food and drink. And so as we think about our path through life, you know, it's rarely going to be the cross, not that we desire, but the cross that we would want. You know, whenever we are called to carry our cross, we typically would want another or ask God, you know, why why would he give us this one above all? And, uh, and, and so uh, humility allows us then to be guided and directed. Anthony writes, the submission of Christians and Muslims who lost children recently in the Holy Land is a concrete example of carrying the cross, you know, cer most certainly. I mean, it's 
an unimaginable again cross that uh, you know that one experiences loss and I think our capacity to see clearly you know uh, you know how what God can do with such evil or what God does in the face of such evil within the life of the world is often the most difficult thing, even for those who have great faith and who have made the cross their constant meditation. I think whenever we are confronted with evil, um, the, the naturally the human heart questions, why? Why me or why my loved one? And uh, I think love demands it. I mean, I think when uh, we see Christ, say, at the tomb of Lazarus, or when we see him looking out upon the crowds and, you know, he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. But in both of those circumstances, we're told that uh, he's shaken to the very depths, that his very body trembles in the face of what sin brings to the world and uh, the destruction that it brings. And uh, so often our English doesn't capture it very well, but when we're told the Christ looks out upon the crowd and they seem like sheep without a shepherd, that the, the vision that is described there as if they had al already been slaughtered, that the, the, the beasts had already uh, uh, had his way with them and they've been left bloodied upon the field. This is, you know, the vision that shakes him to his very depths. And, uh, and so it should be for us as well. But, uh, our response is to be be that of Christ uh, in the face of it, and uh, you know to offer ourselves to Him, and not only to Him, but united with Him. And I think this is where our uh, when we can't see the truth, this is where our only hope is to be found. That all that we suffer is not suffered in isolation, and that it's united to that of the cross. And in this sense, uh, participates not only in our redemption, but of the world itself. Uh, you know, at, at the moment when a person is going through suffering, that might not be much of a comfort. And, you know, I think what we're called to do is to give love and support in those moments. But, uh, but nonetheless, I think in that, you know, we, we mourn as those who have faith and who see through the tears and you know i think this is uh the experience of those who run to the empty tomb you know peter and uh, the beloved disciple you know it's they they run way weighed down by their loss same thing with mary magdalene you know can't see who it is that's speaking to her doesn't recognize him until her name is spoken, that she's so distraught. Uh, number 32. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven and equally hard for those who are foolishly wise to enter simplicity. So foolishly wise, we've talked a little bit about this in, regards, in regard to guile. It's a kind of cunning intelligence, a kind of sly 
intelligence. And, uh, and St. Anthony, one of his famous quote is, you know, that not all those who are intelligent or think themselves intelligent are so within this world, uh, that often they can be the most blind. And so those who are cunning and, you know, use their intelligence uh, as it were to manipulate reality, uh, actually end up having a more distorted reality, vision of reality than those who are simple. And so it becomes very difficult for them to enter in to or upon the, the path of simplicity of the disciple of Christ. Again, you know, I think this is one of the dangers, you know, we live in a time where so much information is available to us. And, you know, we often have the opportunity to pursue higher degrees and are, we can lose this kind of simplicity, uh, not only because of that, but because of the things, you know, the abundance of things that we surround ourselves with, that, um, you know, our life becomes about uh, focusing on those things or holding on to them in one way or another, rather than the pursuit of Christ. Yeah. You know, the, uh, so many things often take on a greater value than our own souls. Number 33. A fall has often corrected the wily, giving them salvation and godlessness in spite of themselves. So, you know, often it is a fall into one of the passions that will wake an individual up. And sometimes it's, we, you know, may find ourselves doing something that we never imagined in our life we could do. You know, we're always in danger when we would say to ourselves, well, I would never do that. Or, you know, I could never imagine myself doing that. Uh, and of course not, you know, I think at a certain point in our life that we could never imagine ourselves in our baser moments and what that would look like uh, if we are given the opportunity or if we are seduced in a certain way or if we've been negligent and mediocre in the spiritual life, that we are capable of the worst. And uh uh, the old phrase of the saints there, but the grace of God go I, is uh, a great source of protection. Uh, because when we see sin, the grave sin within the world or evil, uh, we have to understand that outside of the grace of God, we are capable of that and even worse. And, uh, and so foster, such a thought fosters both gratitude to God for his grace but also this humility of spirit. Number 34. Struggle to delude your own prudence. And by so doing, you will find salvation and uprightness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. He who has the strength for this step, let him take courage, for he has become an imitator of Christ, his master, and has been saved. So probably one of the strangest uh, little statements that we've come across here, struggle to delude your own prudence. Uh, because prudence, uh, we often will equate with right judgment. Uh, and 
but it also can be used uh, in the face of lack of courage that we will say the prudent thing to do is not to walk down that path or not to give ourselves over so fully, not to become a fanatic about the way that we live out our faith. And so prudence can be uh, another word for lack of courage in the spiritual life, to allow ourselves to be drawn along by Christ in the spiritual life. Uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. And so the thought of becoming a confessor of Christ, an imitator of Christ to the world, uh, in and through simplicity, guilelessness, and meekness, and to do it as he has done, uh, you know, when we step back and look at it, especially in reading John Climacus, it can fill the heart with a kind of foreboding. Again, what would my life look like? And isn't it imprudent to make oneself that vulnerable in a world such as ours? And again, from our own perspective, our own judgment, uh, confirmed most often by those surrounding us too, uh, was, would be yes. And uh, we all have that line uh, that we won't cross in regards to the things that we are fearful of or where we don't want to go in terms of forgiveness or whatever it might be. And uh, Cindy writes, my version has cleverness instead of prudence. Um, I think both, both work uh, in this situation. Uh, I like prudence. Uh, I'll have to, I'll look up the, see if I can find the word that, is, that John actually uses. Uh, but prudence, I think, is a good thing for us to think about because it often does become uh, cleverness carries within it uh, a certain connotation, whereas prudence seems so strong, such a strong thing for us to have. It seems to us to be this virtue, which it can be, but it can also become uh, something that's a source of lack of courage for us to take that step forward and to allow ourselves to follow Christ. And I'd be surprised, you know, by the person who doesn't have that feeling. And we almost have to become deluded in regard to it. You know, to have this level of trust uh, in Christ, to follow the path that is set before us in the gospel and what we see on the cross. You know, it, our life will seem foolish to those in the world. You know, to be the most ridiculous thing. And the fact that we've been able to domesticate it and make it attractive in a lot of other ways or make it seem like self-help, you know, as though we're simply seeking peace of mind to alter our mental state, you know, then we've exceeded in not even needing, uh, maybe then it becomes more cleverness. You know, the, our mind has the capacity you know, to alter the gospel, uh, to make us be able to walk it in such a way where uh, we've really stripped it of its power. So a lot to think about there. 
Uh, Father Marty writes, the reading on our calendar for today was leave the 99 to find one. That doesn't seem prudent, right? You know, prudence would say, I need to stay back and protect the rest of the flock, you know, not, not make the risk to, to search out the one. And, uh, uh, you know, I've heard so many stories about cases like this, you know, where, you know, the, the sheep that becomes lost, you know, becomes uh, discombobulated and so fearful that all that it can do is bleat and it becomes sort of paralyzed. And, you know, so it does take the shepherd searching out, searching out and finding it. And often the, you know, when we see a shepherd with the sheep over its sh his shoulders around his neck, it's often for that reason. Uh, that they have to lift them up and carry them home. And often they're so fear filled with fear that the, the sheep will be biting them and nipping at them as well as moving their bowels on them too. I mean, we've sort of prettied the image up, but I don't think it was that pretty for the, the shepherd uh, to, to undergo that. And uh, there are a couple of videos I've seen online too, where you see like a, a farmer uh, pulling a sheep out of a, uh, uh, a ravine and it looks so relieved it starts running and jumping and then jumps back right back into the same ravine that it just took the farmer half an hour to yank him out of and uh, so I think that's you know often the image uh, that is more realistic here but it's true you know that it's not prudent in the sense of worldly judgment you know, a worldly judgment would say, what's one in comparison to those other 99? Whereas the one who's driven by love, divine love, is going to see all the me all meaning in the one and not sacrifice them, but rather sacrifice himself in order to save, to save the one. Okay, that brings us to the end of this step. Uh, any final comments before we move on to number 25? Okay, step 25. On the destroyer of the passions, most sublime humility, which is rooted in spiritual perception. Uh, I mentioned that this seems to gel very well with what we read in the Evergatinos, that it's the one place that where John almost seems to begin to wax poetic because language, I think, begins to fail him. That our ability to understand humility as, as it is to, is as difficult as it is to understand divine love. That it's only understood through experience of the divine, of a participation in the humility of Christ himself. Uh, uh, to be able to see the beauty of it, uh, to long for it, to desire it, and to also see what it accomplishes within the mind and the heart. And so you'll we'll see him using terms here like holy humility, you know, that there is, this is, a, you know, a quality of the divine. He begins by saying, he who thinks that it is possible to use the visible word in order to describe the awareness and effect of the love of the Lord exactly, holy humility, gracefully, blessed purity, truly, 
divine enlightenment clearly, the fear of God honestly, or assurance of heart unerringly, and imagines that by his description of things of this kind, he will enlighten those who have never actually experienced them, is like a man who by words and comparisons wants to give an idea of the sweetness of honey to people who have never tasted it. But just as the latter talks in vain, not to say babbles, so the former either gives the impression of having no experience of what he's talking about, or else has become mere, the mere toy, or I'm sorry, the more the mere toy of vainglory. So, you know, right from the get-go, John makes it very clear, even before uh, moving to his definition, which he typically will start with uh, in a step, that he makes it clear that words fail us uh, and, uh, and do more than that, that it is a kind of absurd thing to believe that we could describe the taste of honey uh, to a person who's never tasted it before. And to lack the experience of it is even worse than one really becomes, uh, you know, babbles in the worst kind of way, reveals that they truly know nothing. And beyond this, John says they make themselves a toil, uh, sorry, a toy of the evil one that uh, because there's a kind of arrogance or pride there to believe that without having pursued it and without being made humble, that one can articulate it for others. That one has to acknowledge from the beginning that words fail and that one has to be very careful when speaking about these things. And so as we move into the last five of the steps, uh, the, the author acknowledges, as Cassian did as well in his conferences, that it becomes much more difficult to describe uh, the state that one is drawn into. Uh, we have a visitor from uh, Australia here tonight, Sam, uh, welcome. Good to have you here. Number two, the subject sets before us as a touchstone a treasure preserved in earthen vessels, that is to say, in our bodies. And it is of a quality that baffles all description. The treasure has an inscription, which is incomprehensible because it comes from above. And those who try to explain it with words give themselves great and endless trouble. And the inscription runs thus, holy humility. So, you know, we are made from the earth, from humus, and the life of God is breathed into us. Uh, but written in our very beings is this reality. And, uh, and to try to explain it away by mere words, or to think that we could capture the essence of what it is to be a human being, uh, the mystery, of, of being a human being, that we are made in the image and likeness of God, but we are made such as we are, uh, is a mystery that's unfathomable. And so to 
uh, think that we're going to be able to capture that easily is to be deluded. Uh, but it's interesting, the inscription runs holy humility. That again, John is pointing us towards something here that part of what makes it difficult to capture with words and describe and, and to describe it is that it is part of the very nature of God. And, uh, and we want to keep this in mind, that this is what is revealed to us in Christ. Learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And so it's in and through him, uh, and that is not only through his teaching, but living in this radical communion with him, that do we come to experience and understand what this, what this means. Number three. Let all who are led by the Spirit of God enter with us into this spiritual and wise assembly, holding in their spiritual hands the good inscribed tablets of knowledge. The, I'm sorry, the God inscribed tablets of knowledge. We have come together, we have investigated, and we have probed the meaning of this precious inscription. inscription and one man said, humility means constant oblivion of one's achievements. Another, it is the acknowledgement of oneself as the last of all and the greatest sinner of all. And another, the mind's recognition of one's weakness and impotence. Another again, in the fits of rage, it means to forestall, forestall one's neighbor and to be first to stop the quarrel. And again, another recognition of divine grace and divine compassion. And again, another, the feeling of a contrite soul and the renunciation of one's own will. But when I had listened to all this and had attentively and soberly investigated it, I found that I had not been able to attain to the blessed perception of that virtue from what had been said. Therefore, last of all, and having gathered what fell from the lips of those learned and blessed fathers, as a dog gathers the crumbs that fall from the table, I too gave my definition of it and said, Humility is a nameless grace in the soul. Its name known only to those who have learned it by experience. It is unspeakable wealth, the name and gift from God. For it is said, learn not from an angel, nor from man, nor from a book, but from me. That is from my indwell, from my illumination and action in you. For I am meek and humble in heart and in thought and in spirit, and your soul shall find rest from conflicts and relief from thoughts. So this is, you know, John, you know, I think sometimes we have this vision of the ascetics as being this, these brutish individuals, you know, hardened by their asceticism. Uh, and yet, when you read something like this from John Climacus, uh, you understand where uh, the, one of the modern elders says, you know, before one becomes a saint, one must be a poet. Uh, and, you know, to be able to capture something of the depths of the mystery 
that we are drawn into. Do you ever, you remember there was a movie out a number of years ago called Contact and uh, Jodie Foster was in it. And it was this whole thing about these plans for this kind of like time travel or space travel machine was given to them and they build it and she has no faith. And at first they don't want to send her, they don't want her who discovered this uh, uh, to go because of her lack of faith that she didn't represent the majority of humanity in her lack of faith and her sort of cold scientific atheism. And, uh, and the first person who goes, it's sabotaged and he dies. And so they then decide to send her. And it's this contraption that, you know, it's like a sort of a sphere that drops down through the center of this mechanism. And what happens is the ball falls through it in a matter of seconds. And uh, she's gone for a longer period of time, but here it seems like the sphere just fell into the net below that caught it. And lo and behold, she's drawn through the, the universe to experience these distant worlds. And as she's seeing them, seeing what's laid out before him, she says something interesting that she says they should have sent a poet that what she was seeing was beyond what she could articulate and beyond her comprehension uh, in its beauty as well. And I find something uh, that speaks to me in a similar way in how John puts it forward here that you know everything that is written in a book, anything that somebody says, uh, fails in this most miserable way until one experiences the living God, until one is drawn into that relationship when the, where the mind and the heart can be expanded because one participates in the reality of his life. And faith then gives one the eyes to see and to understand that which is beyond us, to comprehend the incomprehensible, uh, because we have the reality dwelling within us, we are told. We become the dwelling place of God. This is what you know, God has done for us, that he's emptied us in such himself in such a profound way in order that his very spirit might dwell within us and elevate us, to lift us up, to exalt us, in order that we might experience life in God. Uh, but the, the moment that we begin to cling to our own understanding of things, uh, including our understanding of virtue, is where we weigh ourselves down, hobble ourselves. And uh, where we are told that you know, what you are being drawn into is the very peace of the kingdom, rest from a conflict, relief even from thoughts, that one is drawn into the experience of the living God, that which is beyond words, that which is beyond thought. And so it's quite a striking thing that John is putting here before us. He's telling us that you know, to understand this virtue is to participate in the very life of God. And that there is no other way 
to understand it. And so we must allow ourselves to be guided into it and lifted up. And it is those who make themselves like a child who are lifted up as an infant is drawn up to gaze upon the parent's face, eye to eye, face to face. Similarly, in our uh, uh, simplicity, you know, where we allow ourselves to be taken hold of, that we come to see and understand what is beyond us. So there's a lot there in that paragraph. Anybody have, oh, already comment here, uh, Father Marty. Over the years, I have at times imita imitated humility, but never acquired it. I depend on God to grant me humility as a gift, and I hope asceticism and prayer helps me recognize and receive it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we imitating it is one thing. It is to place ourselves in the hands of God and allow him to shape us is where then it becomes uh, we are made humble. It's not something that we work ourselves toward in asceticism. The asceticism at best removes perhaps impediments to our receiving the gift that God desires to, to give us. Uh, leads us to let go of attachments, but also the things that hold us uh, uh, hold us down in our perception of that which is true. Uh, but ultimately, it is a gift. Louise writes, well, there's a couple here. Uh, Santiago writes, before humility is a decision, is a prayer for. Greetings from Argentina. Right. So before it becomes the reality, it's, you know, it becomes this aspiration uh, and desire, but something that arises from God dwelling within. You know, it's the Holy Spirit that articulates that which is beyond words. And so God has given us the very means to experience this humility, again, by giving us his own spirit that we might know this union and communion with him. Uh, Louise writes, humility baffles me. Maybe humility is something like, I do not know, only God knows. Uh, in contrast, pride would be, I know better than God. Uh, that, that certainly bears itself out. We often know things only by their negative, by their opposite. And so, you know, I think we know pride pretty well, and we see the fruits of it. And it is usually, as you said, not only, you know, to make ourselves equal with God, but better. You know, our judgment is better than than our, our lords and so we become drawn into greater and greater darkness and i think part of it is this acknowledgement that you're saying of i do not know it is when then we can be drawn into understanding uh when we let go of the illusion and uh, i think we all know that's a very difficult thing to do because you know, to let go of boundaries uh, that not only protect us, but give us a sense of reality, you know, something to hold on to. We like fences, we like things neatly, you know, 
cordoned off. And that's true also in our understanding of reality, but also when we let go of that, we find ourselves on the edge of insanity, you know, because we are letting go of our limited perception of reality. And so at times when we see the lives of the saints or we hear them talk about things, it, sound, it can sound very much like that because they're not living on the same level that most of us are living. They've let go of the things that we desperately, they've let go of things that we desperately hold on to. Sam writes, this also reminds me of the need for humility acceptance of spiritual direction as many have fallen along the path to asceticism where pride comes and destroys the childlike humility needed through spiritual direction and discernment of guidance or advice. Right, and I think this was mentioned at the end of our last step uh, that, you know, we, you know, one of the ways that we are drawn out of this uh, cunning intelligence is to place ourselves under obedience, under direction, the direction of another. And uh, which is to, you know, humbly acknowledge, I do not know the path that lies ahead or even how to get there. Alexander writes, you recognize your own pride when you are not looking for humility and it comes to your right, comes to your right in your face. Yes, that's often the case. And, you know, this idea of being made humble. And I think it's often experience of humiliation for us, too, because it is, uh, you know, it can be a blow to, again, our ego, this image of self and that we've often created for ourselves. And so to come into contact with the living God with truth itself with humility you know undermines all of that and so we are uh, can be brought low our initial experience of it uh, can be something that's very painful to us the things are not the way that we thought they were or what they seem to be to us and that's where judging another, you know, where it's they repeated over and over again throughout these texts that even if we see a person's sin, we are not to make a judgment because it does not want the, the one sin, no matter how grave, does not capture the essence of the human person. We, we often have a hard time believing that about ourselves, that we are not the sum total of our sins and that Christianity is not simply, you know, uh, uh, trying, you know, to, to overcome our sin. You know, it's something greater than that. It's, you know, we are seeking to participate in the very life of God. You know, we're not just climbing up the ladder of virtue, in other words. And this is, you know, often the critique of Christianity that we fall into, you know, this kind of intellectualism or a moralism, a legalism, and that really diminishes the, the mystery, I think, that John is seeking to lay before us here, almost as an invita invitation 
to enter into or allow ourselves to be drawn into. Christian writes, are there some points in the spiritual life where we need a spiritual director to grow in humility further? Uh, certainly our spiritual director can help us, but, uh, you know, I really think it is God who, you know, has given us the spirit that not only searches the depths of God, but searches our depths, that draws us forward and perfects that humility. And in our reading about humility up to this point, we are told that we can be brought to this point uh, where we are, you know, free from our passions and uh, and then our, we can reach this certain level of perfection and humility. But then God, you know, God will humble us through allowing us to experience a certain fall and our weakness to draw us further in that perfection of humility. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it is only through his drawing us into his own life that we come to experience it in his perfection. Because we're not talking about simply the perfection of a human or natural virtue. We're talking about a participation in the, the life, the virtue, the strength of Christ. And if we, again, if we don't let go of, you know, this limited uh, notion of it is it's not as though we don't progress through this understanding or limited understanding of humility or the spiritual life or our understanding of God we do you know through our meditation upon the scriptures the writings of the fathers our participation in the sacramental life but when we look at somebody a writer like John of the Cross he says you know we reach a point where we have to allow God to draw us along the path of darkness of faith and we have to let go of what is lesser, not that which is bad, but that is lesser and can never bring us into that deepest intimacy, that which has become a crutch for us that we use to carry us forward, but does not reveal God to us as he is in himself. There's nothing that we could conceive or perceive by the mere power of intellect that is going to allow us to experience and to know God as he is in himself. We have to allow ourselves to be drawn along the dark path of faith. And if you remember, I've mentioned this before, John describes that as a ligature, a break. It's painful to let go of what had held us steady or allowed us to move forward in the past, to, find, to, to experience it as lacking. And having to let go of it because then we feel that what is it what's going to hold us up if we let go and simply reach out for god it can feel to say the least to be a very precarious position again even in terms of one's own sanity you know to let go of our grip upon something that has shaped our our view of reality even religious reality Louise writes, I'm concerned about the diabolic trap of euthanasia offered to people in Canada, individuals choosing medical assistance in dying or maids as part of the human dignity to choose 
are basically saying to God, I decide when I die, not you. I choose not to suffer. I'm afraid that they can only end up in hell. What would the Desert Fathers say? Well, I don't think the Desert Fathers would say anything about the individual, but I think they would agree with what is being said here, that we are being drawn along a kind of diabolic path of placing ourselves in the position of God. That, uh, and it is an attempt to control reality for oneself. And so it becomes, it mimics the temptation put before Adam and, Adam and Eve, eat of the fruit of the tree and your eyes will be open and you will come to know, experience good and evil for yourself. You will become like gods, they are told. And so I think there's that same temptation that at this one moment in our life when we feel least in control and in reality are least in control, when nothing around us that we've gained or in this world or, or have invested with so much meaning and value is going to give us meaning and value like faith and the love of others and the love of God and to place ourselves completely in his hands at that time can be a, a terrifying thing especially if faith begins to fail a person. And so the last desperate uh, attempt to hold on to control is to try to control our death. I choose that for myself. And, you know, in our world, it's being put forward as a liber of path to liberation or a, a, a right you know, that this is kind of freedom. And what it's really an expression of is a kind of darkness and blindness that uh, that overtakes us. So, you know, often instead of supporting others, you know, in this most important time in their life, uh, they're often neglected. And, and so this choice is even, you know, we see put before them, not only by doctors, but sometimes by fa family. And perhaps some of us here have had that experience where, you know, someone has a serious disease and they're dying and somebody in the family will say something like that, you know, to them when they're, when they're vulnerable, rather than being a source of strength and presence to them of love. Anthony writes, I enjoy a particular craft. To really know it, I have to stop reading, stop being distracted by other crafts, and just work, interacting with the metal and tools. And experiencing this vocation, it's an analogy to discovering God. You just have to quit the inaction, focus, and do it, and you grow without fixation on laws, on control, on growing. You just do it, and the beauty, truth, and goodness comes. Yeah, you know, as I was reading your comment, I think the thought that came into mind was our Lord's teaching on the Eucharist, and, you know, and putting the question to Peter, will you leave me too? And Peter only being able to say, well, where are we to go? You have the words of eternal life, everlasting life. 
know, he acknowledges that he cannot wrap his mind around the mystery that has been revealed to him, that unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. And yet he trusts the person of Christ, the one speaking to him, love incarnate, that his experience of Christ is what allows him to make this ascent which is beyond reason and understanding. Now, where are we to go? You are life, you are truth, you are love. And so I make this ascent to what you're saying, trusting that you will make it so. Now there's an imperfection there. We know that he fled like the rest of them, but nonetheless, it stands before us as this extraordinary faith that Peter was also capable of. Well, my friends, believe it or not, that brings us to 830. And that's a lot uh, to think about as it is. So be patient with this one. And the, uh, it's again, it's one of the most beautiful of the steps. So we do well to linger. Okay. So have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. And thank you for all of your comments. Have a great week. And when we close, as always, with the our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.